When was the last time you were in D.C.? I'm here now. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here now. And, and When I talked to Tom Davis, he had just had a Diet Coke for breakfast. I feel like you can hear it in his voice, that jangly energy. And I was up on the House on opening day. I was went over, stayed over on the Republican side for a good chunk of it, and then went over to the Democratic side just to talk to people watching the roll call. Tom Davis is an old Washington hand. He was in Congress for over a decade, a Republican representing Northern Virginia. I still have floor privileges. Uh, I'm not lobbying. And I just decided to go up to the floor. It's an exciting day. You got a lot of new members coming in, and it was just an exciting place to be. I remember my first day in Congress in 1995. And for a lot of these young Democrats, they've taken back the House. There's a, that excitement. I mean, you can't beat it outside of maybe a World Series game. So it's exciting for you even when the other side wins? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it, yeah. I, I mean, <clears throat> it's, the longer you leave this, you're not a partisan anymore. You're, you're just interested in good government. You want to make the place work. I am a citizen, first of all. Yeah, I, I know I was campaign chairman for the Republicans. I'm still a Republican. But you, you want the country to work, too. Of course, the country's not working right now, literally, because it's shut down. And I wanted to talk to Tom Davis because he was there at what I think of as the beginning of an era. Good afternoon. Today, as of noon, almost half of the federal government employees are idle. I was there for the uh, longest shutdown in history, representing a district across the river with 58,000 federal employees. It is particularly unfortunate that the Republican Congress has brought us to this juncture. This was 95, 96, when government shutdowns first became weaponized, these tools of partisan politics. So, Mr. President, we're going to work for a continuing resolution. We want to put all the working men and women that work for our government back to work. But we're not going to do that and let you sneak by without any commitments on a balanced budget. We can you know, all I can say is I feel the pain, but I was voting for anything that opened the government. Democratic proposal, Republican proposal. Uh, my loyalty was to my constituents out there to keep the government open, not just uh, the 58,000 federal employees, but 100,000 plus federal contractors, uh, none of whom were getting paid at this point. Yeah, what were the constituents telling you? They tell me they want to go to work and they want to get paid, and, and they felt dissed. They felt like they were just pawns in a huge game. Can you describe what it, what the pressure kind of felt like, like as the weeks went on? Well, I kept saying, I remember t- taking Dick Army, who was the majority leader aside, and saying, Dick, h- have you polled this? And at that point, uh, he said, uh, no, he said, we're kind of going blind. I said, Dick, I think we're losing this thing. And so I think eventually they went into the field and saw this was a, a loser for them, and they folded. But it's very different now. You're two years from an election this time, or, you know, 21 months or something. Memories are short in this business. And as a result of that, you know, you can sit out a longer time and probably bear no, no uh, long-term political consequence. You make a hit in the short term. Problem for President Trump is if he folds, this will haunt him through the rest of his term. And I think he feels that th- those are more important issues from a political perspective to stand your ground now. Uh, than the short-term hit you take on closing the government. So here we are, stuck. When Tom Davis was in Congress, he was known as a master of compromise. For some people, it was even a little bit of a joke. But that's why I wanted to get him on the line. Davis thinks there's a solution to this shutdown, which is about to become the longest in history. Slate's Capitol Hill correspondent Jim Newell is less convinced. I'm going to talk to him, too. Stay with us. 
Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Tom Davis is a Republican, but he quit Congress back in 2008. And he's different than a lot of the Republicans on Capitol Hill these days. He's old school. He kind of thinks the new kids in town are screwing things up. Well, I don't think anybody cares about the government. I mean, to to them, I I think to both sides at this point, oh, sure, we'd like to keep it open, but this is a battle of of you'll fold uh, and we're staring each other down to see who folds first. And nobody's paying any any attention to the consequences of this, and that is it's it's going to cost more than $5 billion uh, the shutdown alone uh, in terms of what the American taxpayers are doing. Tell me a little bit about this. Like when these shutdowns go on so long, how are they disruptive in ways that Americans might not be seeing right now? You just have a lot of ordinary things in business. Passports aren't being filled. The everyday workings of government, all this stuff gets backlogged. You're paying people right now for not doing anything. So you're paying for lost productivity. They're not getting paid now. Their pay is being delayed. And think of that TSA worker that's sitting there probably at the peak time of the year, the travel time of the year, working there with angry crowds, trying to get on their plane, working overtime in some cases, and not getting paid at all uh, because the government won't open. That's what you've got. Yeah. I mean, I get, and you said it would cost $5 billion. Why? It would cost over $5 billion. Well, because you're paying people for not in, for no productivity at all. That's, what, that's why. Do you mean because when they come back, they'll get lost wages? That's right. Turns out there are startup costs to a government shutdown. You pay people for work they didn't do, and then they have to repair all the damage done while the doors were closed. Some government revenues won't ever be collected. The government has to pay interest on any bills it didn't pay while workers were sitting at home. And don't get Tom Davis started on the headache for government contractors. If you're a government contractor... You have, let's say, well, I'm a government contractor with 100 people. I'm working federal contracts. When your agency closes down, in most cases, you have to stop work. So you have these people. You're a relatively small or mid-sized business. You have to pay your people for this period of time, and they can't do anything or bill any time out. And so you have to eat that out of overhead or G&A. And the end result of that is it's, it's, it piles up losses. And for these smaller companies and startups and the, and the like, it can be devastating. Yeah, you're thinking about it like a businessman. Like, <laughs> Well, that's what I am. Yeah. That's what I was before I went to Congress and afterwards. But I, I, we have the business president, right? I mean, this is the, we're supposed to be sensitive to these kind of things. I mean, you're a tactician, though. Like, draw mm-hmm. me the map out of this mess. Well, there are a couple maps. I, I, there, there are several ways out, out of this. Is You need to make this a win-win. You can call a, a fence a wall. You, there's a lot of ways you can get a strong border security package that may satisfy the president. The Democrats are going to have to give him something on the, on the wall, it would seem to me, uh, that's, not, that's innocuous and something they could have supported before. But they need to get something big in return. That's why the obvious thing to those of us looking at this from, from 30,000 feet is DACA has been hanging out there. This is a Democratic base vote issue. These thousands of, of people, hundreds of thousands, are sitting, sitting in limbo, not knowing where their lives go. If you put that into statute, it, it, it solves a lot of problems down the road for these people. 
that that's a small price to pay for a little bit a little bit more wall. It seems to me. Yeah, you're talking but, about the dreamers. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But after I got off the phone with Tom Davis, President Trump tried to hash things out in a meeting with the Democrats. It did not go well. He said, "You, if I open up the government, you won't do what I want. That's cruel. That's callous. And that's using millions of innocent people as sort of pawns. And it was wrong. And then a few minutes later, he sort of slammed the table. And when Leader Pelosi said she didn't agree with the wall, he just walked out and said, we have nothing to discuss. Now the president is headed to the border to keep making his case. When we come back, Slate's Jim Newell tells us whether there really is an endgame for this shutdown. Trump is going to the border today to sort of continue selling this idea of national security to, I guess, the American people, but also people in Washington. But the administration is also working behind the scenes to kind of pull some levers and sort of see who they can move. How's that going? Uh, Not very well. Jim Newell covers Congress for Slate. I don't see any movement from anyone. The only movement I see is from Republicans who are starting to get antsy about this continuing to go on. I mean, you've had in the Senate, Susan Collins, Cory Gardner, and now Lisa Murkowski saying we should just start passing funding bills and leave the wall for a a later discussion. Uh, In the House, Democrats are going to start putting individual appropriations bills on the floor that are going to put some pressure on Republicans. And Republicans are working pretty hard to make sure that they don't lose too many of of their ranks. I mean, they could lose 25 or 50 on each of these individual bills. So, I mean, they didn't think this was a good idea in the first place. That's why they passed that, you know, short term stopgap funding bill uh, that Trump originally said he would sign. You know, we've seen some reporting that Trump is looking for a way out, but it can't look like a way out. You know, (laughs) he he doesn't want to look like he's folding. It's difficult to find out exactly what that may be. But I think that's where we are. You're raising something, which is, you know, the Democrats and their stance here. And to figure something out here, the Democrats are going to have to compromise, too. Like, everyone's going to have to get dinged. Everyone's going to have to win. Like, there's going to have to be something in there for everyone. And that means everyone will hate it a little bit, too. You know, in the past, Democrats have talked about this wall sort of in conjunction with DACA, with some kind of legislation that will protect the DREAMers. Are they beginning to have those conversations again now? I think they had those conversations and they're not having them anymore. I I think there's incentive on each side to sort of see what happens when the Supreme Court rules on DACA. And Trump has said this publicly. He thinks that if, you know, right now DACA is being preserved through a court injunction against terminating the program, the Supreme Court is going to hear it. And if the Supreme Court sides with Trump and they say, well, uh, Trump is actually right, he's able to eliminate this program, then I think Trump thinks that that will give him more leverage in the DACA negotiations, which I think is true. Um, And I just think that right now, as we're in this holding pattern, it's very hard for lawmakers to make a difficult decision. You know, it's very hard for Democrats to vote for a $25 billion wall. It's very hard for Republicans to vote for, you know, quote unquote, amnesty for any undocumented immigrants. So I I think that those talks of a bigger deal 
they're just recognizing that they're not going to have the bandwidth to go through with something like that right now. Here's the thing that really gets me about the shutdown, which is that none of this is necessary. Like the Constitution doesn't say this is how Congress has to do business. And for years, these shutdowns weren't weren't a thing. I mean, how did this system start? So this started in the early 1980s. Before that, when there was a funding lapse, federal workers would still go to work. You know, nothing would really change. There was maybe hesitancy to enter new contracts at the time before Congress came up with a funding deal, but you would still go to work. So then in 1980, there was an opinion from the Justice Department and a follow-up one in 1981 that said, because of the Anti-Deficiency Act, which is an 1870 act, which says you can't incur debts without any appropriations in place, that federal workers would would have to go home, that you would have to shut down all you know, existing actions until there was federal money in place for that. So that's mm-hmm. when it began. There have been, I think, 17 shutdowns since then. So, you know, it's really sort of crazy that this is just, it's, it was considered a pretty rigid interpretation at the time, but that's the interpretation we're still going under. Well, Congress could fix it too, right? So there have been proposals, and from what I found out, this is on pretty solid legal ground that if a funding deadline reached without Congress having passed anything, you would go into a system of automatic continual resolution. Remember, we're in this situation because of something called a continuing resolution. Congress has to pass CRs in order to keep paying the bills. We could make these things automatic, but then the terms of the automatic continuing resolution would come up for negotiation. What I found out looking at these proposals and why they haven't happened is that it really does depend on the design of the auto continuing resolution. There have been some Republican ones in the past where you know, the continuing resolution would either keep things at a flat level or even incur cuts in spending the longer it goes on. And then if you're a Republican lawmaker, you might think, oh, that's great. I like those cuts. I'm never going to vote for a budget again. So then you're permanently in this auto-continuing resolution state. And that's something why a lot of Democrats have objected to them in the past. So it becomes a way to trim the government. It becomes a way to trim the government. And just the way they should be doing their job is passing budgets that respond to current needs, that reallocate money when priorities change from year to year. If you get into a situation where, one, it's just easy for everyone to never take a difficult vote and stay in auto-continuing resolution mode forever, or you make it that's advantageous to one party to always stay with the auto-continuing resolution, then, you know, not only are you helping a certain party, but Congress isn't doing their job in responding to certain needs. So I think they could maybe come up with a way to do this. It doesn't benefit either party, but it's so delicate that they haven't really gone anywhere with it so far. It's like neurosurgery in Congress. Yeah, a little bit. It's hard. And this was something that they considered. So I've been talking to some members of the Select Committee on Budget and Appropriations Reform, which sounds very boring, but it was... (laughs) It was something that was created in 2018 when there was this long process of CRs that went halfway into the fiscal year and Congress members were getting fed up. So I talked to one senator, um, Sheldon Whitehouse, who's on the committee, and he said, well, yeah, we wanted to figure out how to pass appropriations and budgets on times. We didn't want to go more in the direction of permanent CRs. And then he said, but now that we're in a shutdown, it actually seems like a better idea. Okay, Jim, thank you so much. Okay, thank you. For what it's worth, before we got off the phone, 
I went back and forth with Tom Davis, that Republican congressman from Virginia, about whether he could have passed an automatic continuing resolution, about whether that was a real solution here. Would you have voted for an automatic budget continuing resolution? I would have, sure. But do you have regret about not trying to solve it back then when people, when there was a chance? We've had opportunity after opportunity to solve things. Nobody wants to take a tough vote. So I remember whipping a guy saying, and I hope this passes. I said, great, we got you down against it. He said, well, I am against it, you, you, but, but it's got to pass. But I could never explain this. And I just said, why are you here? If you can't take a tough vote, why are you here? This episode is brought to you by SAP. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI will not help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia, or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks, or automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Before we go, one last rabbit hole I fell down today. Just up the street from us in Brooklyn, there is a trial going on for a Mexican drug kingpin. Goes by the name El Chapo. His real name's Joaquin Guzman. This trial is notable for a lot of reasons. First, because Guzman is the most high-ranking drug lord to go on trial in the U.S. He's also known for escaping the police more than once. So whenever the NYPD takes Guzman to court, they shut down the Brooklyn Bridge to get him there and transport him in what's been called an egg-like coffin. But this week, the trial was notable because of testimony that made it clear just how much your IT guy probably knows about you. It turns out that to gather evidence against El Chapo, the FBI recruited a computer tech who was encrypting Guzman's cell phone. This Colombian IT guy made it possible for the FBI to listen in to Guzman's phone calls, even read text messages he sent to his wife and girlfriends. So after one of Guzman's notorious escapes in 2012, We now know that he texted his wife asking for shampoo and underwear and black mustache dye. If you want to read and hear more about this, check out Alan Foyer's Twitter feed. He is covering the trial for The New York Times. And remember, if you want to keep a secret, don't write it down, especially not on a computer. All right, that's the show. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Leave a rating and a review. It helps other people find us. What Next is hosted by me, Mary Harris, and produced by Mary Wilson and Jason DeLeon. Talk to you tomorrow. This has been fantastic. I feel like uh, you've really taken me behind the uh, scenes in Congress there. I'm really grateful. Well, I'm for glad your time. I'm up there. I'm in a better, I'm in a better place. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts, so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I'm host of Amicus. Slate's podcast about the law and the U.S. Supreme Court. 
We are shifting into high gear, coming at you weekly with the context you need to understand the rapidly changing legal landscape. The many trials of Donald J. Trump, judicial ethics, arguments and opinions at SCOTUS. We are tackling the big legal news with clarity and insight every single week. New Amicus episodes every Saturday, wherever you listen.